Hi and welcome to the All Plane Podcast, where we talk with the movers and shakers that are redefining the future of commercial aviation. As usual, before we start, let me remind you once more that all previous episodes of this podcast, as well as many other aviation stories, are available on the All Plane website. That's allplane.tv, A-L-L-P-L-A-N-E.tv. Now to today's episode. Much in line with the idea of bringing independent voices to this podcast, our guest today is Patrick Edmond, Managing Director of aviation consultancy firm Altair Advisory. Based out of Ireland, Patrick advises airlines, airports and other firms in the commercial aviation ecosystem in a range of business matters. Patrick is a long-time industry veteran that has held managerial roles at several airlines, airports, aircraft lessers, and technology and consultancy firms servicing the air transport industry. So it is from these very wide-ranging wealth of experiences that we engage with Patrick in a conversation that touches upon several key topics that are now very hot in the aviation industry, such as sustainability, as well as the equilibrium between different types of airline business models and the implications for the communities they serve. From regional aviation, which is a subject of particular interest to Edmond, to LCCs, low-cost carriers, and how both interact in the market. In this episode, we'll have the chance to dig a bit farther into some of those topics, which are actually quite fundamental to the future evolution of the industry. So, without further ado, let me welcome Patrick to the podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, Patrick. How are you? Hi, Mikhail. Nice to talk to you today. Yeah, likewise. Where are you joining us from today? I'm joining you from the west of Ireland, not too far from Shannon Airport. Excellent. So one of the nodes of wall aviation, at least it used to be. Yeah, it, it used it used to be absolutely back in the late 1930s and 1940s. Uh, Shannon and Foynes, just across the estuary from Shannon, um, was w- really one of the the busiest airports in the world. In fact, there was one point where Foynes, the flying boat base, was the busiest civil airport in the world. That means probably about one Ryanair 737 worth of passengers per day. But back then, that was busy. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, so that's one of possibly one of the reasons that Ireland has such a prominent role relative to size, the size of the country, in the global aviation industry. So it's amazing how many how many Irish people and Irish companies uh, you, you come across in, <laughs> in the world of commercial aviation. I think that's true, actually. I mean, there's lots of lots of Irish pubs around the world and there's lots of Irish aviation professionals around the world. Um, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think Ireland originally had a key role because of its geographic location um, when uh, Charles Lindbergh was flying across the Atlantic in the first solo flight, Spirit of St. Louis. Uh, in his autobiography, he famously said, um, I saw the green hills of Ireland and this is one of the four corners of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so he he was probably quite relieved to see Ireland at that point. But since then, you know, Ireland developed as a as a refueling point initially for transatlantic flights in Shannon. But subsequently, um, Ireland's become a, a really major global center for aviation finance and yeah. for leasing. So probably about half of all leased aircraft in the world are managed by Irish companies these days. So it's a it's a huge industry for us. Um, and of course, Ireland is a, is an island as well. So most of the travel on and off uh, the island is by air. So it's a very important industry for for all of us who live here from that point of view as well. Yeah, indeed. Actually, that's a topic I had a chance to cover in a recent article for the Points Guy about aircraft registrations. And it was quite interesting to learn about the different factors that made of Ireland such a such an important place to to get 
aircraft register, for example, which is an area I think that you, you've been professionally involved as well. Actually, I wanted to ask you now to introduce yourself and to give us a bit of background about who you are and, and your very vast experience in the world of aviation. Well, thanks, Mikel. I'll be happy to. Um, I guess I started out many, many years ago as a computer engineer. So my background is in high technology, but I'd always had a, a really strong interest in aviation and not so much wanting to be a pilot, but specifically um, looking at how airlines develop their networks and their schedules. So in modern parlance, I suppose I would have described myself as a timetable geek, but back then the term didn't exist. So I started my career in engineering and worked in that for many years. But uh, um, as I as I like to say, my colleagues were sitting around at the coffee break reading Electronics Weekly magazine, and I was reading Airline Business. So finally, I decided it was time to, uh, to align what I was really interested in uh, with my career. So I uh, left my job. I went back to college for a year. I went to Cranfield and did a master's in air transport management. From there, I went into a consultancy company specializing in aviation. And from there... And this is about 20 years ago, a little bit more than 20 years ago now. Um, I joined an airline. At the time, it was a a UK airline based in Manchester uh, called Maersk Air UK. So it was a British Airways franchise airline. And it was a them. sorry, it was a subsidiary originally. It was a, a subsidiary of the Danish yes, uh, yes, that's trade right. and, and, and logistics group, right? That's right. So it was a subsidiary of 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 the uh, the Maersk Group, which is a huge mm-hmm. shipping and at the time aviation group and and oil and gas as well. So anyway, they had a UK airline. I worked with that for a few years. We ended up doing a management buyout, becoming independent. Um, As with many small airlines, unfortunately, it uh, it didn't succeed. Um, So the airline closed down. Um, I uh, worked in aircraft leasing for a couple of years after that. Then I joined another uh, another regional airline, uh, CityJet in Ireland, at the time the Irish affiliate of Air France. And from there, I went to work in the airports business. So I mentioned that I live near Shannon. Uh, I was the strategy director in the Shannon Group, the operator of Shannon Airport for several years, working on bringing new companies to, to Shannon Airport, to developing the airport's activities. And for the last few years, I've been managing director of Altair Advisory, which is an aviation strategy consultancy. So we advise airlines and airports and public sector bodies um, about uh, aviation development and increasingly about aviation sustainability. So that's a that's a short short summary of my background. Yeah, well, e- excellent. I think it, you can give us a, a, a very broad and and comprehensive view of the industry of the different topics we're going to talk about today, uh, because you've been on on both sides of the trenches in an airline, in an airport, as a consultant. Uh, so yeah. Hopefully, we'll be able to get a very comprehensive view of uh, the topics we're going to talk about. I look forward to the discussion, Mikael, because yeah. I think there's, you know, it's a, it's a complicated industry and there are multiple players involved. And at times, we have the impression that they don't all talk to each other as constructively as they could. So it's really interesting. And I found it really interesting to be able to see, as you said, the different sides of the trenches, to see this industry from different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, there's a segment of this industry that I think you know pretty well. That's one of the topics I would like to focus on, and that's regional aviation, particularly because from the 
point of view of sustainability, which is a hot topic now in the industry, basically regional aviation is commonly seen as the spearhead of all the efforts to decarbonize aviation for a number of, of technical reasons. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about what's the dynamic now in this in this segment of the industry, because we have different different forces at play here simultaneously. We have the traditional regional aviation sector. Then we have uh, these sort of emerging, which is it's not there yet, but it, it's kind of starting to emerge a new regional aviation sector that promises to be completely different because of the use of electric and hybrid aircraft. And we might see some new operators there. And then, of course, there's another player here, and, and that's uh, low-cost airlines that are basically developing new markets and opening new markets, new city pairs that might have been unthinkable, like 20 years ago, for example, I'm sure when you you guys were working with Maersk, some of the city pairs that are now regularly operated by, by low-cost carriers with uh, pretty large aircraft, 189 uh, even larger aircraft, might have been quite unthinkable because there was not really a market for many of these. I'm, I'm thinking about Europe now. I guess it's a bit similar in the US as well, where we are seeing some, some other new generation regional airlines such as Breeze recently. But I don't know. Places like destinations like flying from a regional city in the middle of Spain to a regional city in the middle of Italy, or from Ireland to some second tire city in Germany. These type of city pairs were kind of unusual at the time, and now they have become commonplace. So trying to understand what are the dynamics here, what's your view on this uh, regional aviation industry, and what do you think we can expect to happen in this in this category? Wow, that's a that's a big yeah. topic. So <laughs> I know um, maybe we should we, break we... it down in 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 little in little little bits. Um, well, let, let's yeah. let's 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 start off and 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 think a little bit about what we mean when we talk about regional aviation. So so sure. especially in a European context, this might be airlines that are flying shorter routes, are flying to secondary airports, are typically flying with smaller aircraft. So we might imagine perhaps flying with 100-seaters or, or below 100-seaters. In some cases, they might have slightly larger than 100-seaters. But for the most part, we're talking about airlines that are connecting local communities, perhaps are connecting secondary points or remote points to a central hub. But they're, they're not the big flag carriers. They're not Lufthansa and Air France and British Airways and so on. These would be um, these would be airlines around Europe, for example, Air Nostrum in Spain, Vidaro yeah. in, in Norway, uh, Emerald Airways in Ireland, Logan Air in Scotland, carriers yeah. like that. Flybe, um, Flybe in the UK, for example. Flybe in the UK, and we can we can find other examples yeah. like that uh, around Europe. And of course, this is also the case in other parts of the, the world, but let's just focus on Europe for a moment. So the regional sector has, has always been important um, within Europe. Um, the uh, the body that represents the regional airlines in Europe, the European Regions Airline Association, ERA for short, was founded way back in, in 1980. And the regional airline landscape in Europe back then was very different. But you'll remember airline names like Crossair or Terralian or Air Littoral or Britair or um, NFD or Air Wales. So, so a very different yeah. set of airlines. Um, mm -hmm. These days, um, the the industry and the sector is still is still going strong. So, for example, this year, the regional airlines in ERA um, will probably carry more than 50 million passengers around Europe. Mm -hmm. um, and that's accounting for about data count between them, between them for about um, 600 aircraft. So they're flying about 
probably about 1500 different routes around Europe. So when we talk about we talk about the the different sectors within aviation, we typically talk about network carriers and we talk about low cost carriers as of course we should, but there's a there's a third sector which is extremely important and which has this distinct uh, role within aviation connecting those secondary points between themselves and also connecting those secondary points into into hubs and into bigger cities. Um, and as you mentioned a few moments ago, Mikael, we, we see at the moment that the, the regional sector is evolving for the future in that the exciting new aircraft developments like electric aircraft, hydrogen fuel cell based aircraft and so on, it'll be in the regional space that those aircraft will be entering service. So so this will really be dynamizing the industry further. Yeah. And we've seen actually some of the carriers you mentioned have taken a, a pretty active role. Thinking about Widero in Norway, for example, uh, that we had here on the podcast a few months ago, uh, they have a very exciting and very ambitious program. Uh, Loganair in Scotland is also pretty active in in a number, a number of different programs in sustainable aviation. And that makes sense, I guess, because most of the aircraft that are being now proposed with electric propulsion or with uh, with hydrogen propulsion as well, there are, there are some projects out there that are focusing on, on, on this uh, segment of, of aircraft up to 50 passengers, but even lower. I mean, even, even now we see hard aerospace in Sweden, for example, that switched from a 19-passenger aircraft originally to a 30-passenger aircraft. But but yeah, those. I mean, everyone is expecting the regional regional sector to to be the one that decarbonizes first. And I don't know how this fits with another narrative that we are seeing now, and that's actually the lobbying to ban short-haul flights, because many of these flights, many of the regional flights are relatively short. And we have countries like France, for example, that have shown some political intent to ban those flights. I'm just thinking here, well, we have these two kind of opposing mm-hmm. forces at the same time. If you ban the flights, then how are you going to get this industry off the ground? Sure. Which sure. Is, because it, it's going to be the test bank for decarbonization of, of larger segments of the industry, I guess. Oh, it absolutely is. But I think we need to to drill down a little bit to this discussion about banning short-haul flights. And if you take the French case, um, the proposal is to ban flights where there is a rail alternative of less than uh, two and a half hours, as I recall. Um, and what we're talking about in general for, for regional aviation is not the plane competing with high-speed trains. Um, that's a um, that's a bit of a fallacy. It's really, and you mentioned Vidaro in Norway, and that's a really good example. These may be relatively short sectors, but it's uh, enabling people to go across a mountain or go from one side of a fjord to another. So it's it's really providing a service where there is no no good alternative. Here in Ireland, um, there's a, a route from from Donegal to Dublin. There's no train in Donegal. The alternative is perhaps a, a five-hour road trip. So um, I think that the proposal to move away from from flying, where it's directly competing with a high-speed train, actually isn't isn't particularly material for for regional airlines. I actually had a conversation a year or two ago with one of the the um, senior managers of one of the airlines in France that was going to be most affected by this. And and he kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, no, we're not particularly worried about that because those kind of high profile bans, yeah, they're a bit of a blunt instrument, um, but they don't really have an impact on the core regional business. I'd mentioned in passing as well that planes and trains are increasingly going to be playing together. And what I mean by that is, uh, we're going to see more and more intermodal transport in the future because rather than saying I need to get from A to B, I have to do it 
only by plane or only by train, um, we're going to see increasing amounts of, of of linking up. So it may make sense that I take a train to a particular airport and then I change onto a plane from there or vice versa. And there's a whole other area to talk about there in terms of how the ticketing for that can be done and how the connections can be made. But um, I don't see any particular contradiction between the development of, of regional aviation and these kind of short-term restrictions. What essentially those restrictions are trying to do is they're trying to decarbonize transport, which we would all agree with, but they're also trying to ensure that we're using the most effective means of transport for, for given links. And I think regional airlines have a very strong story to tell there. You're talking about this intermodality. What we're seeing as well is actually an effort by many of these uh, entrepreneurs in the, uh, let's say, in the regional, electric regional air transport to pitch the new possibilities that are afforded by the electric propulsion. Uh, It's quieter, it's cheaper to operate, cheaper to maintain as a way to basically to reach many destinations that are now not served by any airline and to create what could be a sort of on-demand service network, a bit more like a taxi than than a, a traditional airline. So do you think it could be that we might actually end up flying more, not less, over short distances if these airlines really deliver on that promise? So what we've seen over the last few decades has been a general increase in average aircraft size. So perhaps 20 years ago, 30 years ago, there were quite a a lot of 19-seater aircraft flying around on regional routes. Then they got replaced by 30-seaters. Then those got replaced by 50-seaters. Now we're seeing mostly 70-seaters in the market, 70-seaters and above. So there is a steady growth from that point of view. And of course, that does mean that there are routes that are are no longer served because they're 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 too thin for these kind of uh, these kind of aircraft. So I think about some of the routes, for example, that uh, that Logan Air serves in Scotland, they've replaced their 34 seater Saab 340s by 50 seater or 48 seater ATR 42s. So those are already getting getting bigger. Um, I think as the new aircraft arrive, whether it's the heart aerospace aircraft, whether it's other aircraft, other electric aircraft that are on the drawing board from uh, aviation or from Aura Aero in France, um, I think we'll see opportunities to to bring those aircraft in and start uh, start new thinner routes. I think the 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 eVTOL kind of air taxi model um, still has quite a way to go to, to to prove itself, and that's quite a a different different kind of model to a conventional uh, conventional airline model. So I think I think just from a business model point of view, I think I think it still has quite a quite a distance to go. But certainly the conventional approach of here is a flight that leaves at ten o'clock in the morning um, that you and the other passengers can get on, and by the way. This flight is possible because we have a new, very efficient, very environmentally friendly aircraft with, let's say, 19 seats or 30 seats that can can run on this route, whereas there's nothing else that can do so profitably. I think that's a real opportunity for the future. What has been driving this, uh, let's say, development of the low-cost airline industry across, let's say, the second and third tier cities, at least in Europe? I don't know other countries that well in that in that regard uh, for example i think the landscape in in the us is a bit different also other countries um, i don't know india brazil china i don't know them that well but at least in europe 
uh, as I was mentioning earlier, we have seen carriers like, for example, Ryanair or Wizair developing many of these markets. And even more recently, carriers like Volotea, in, uh, well, based in Spain, but, but operating all over Western Europe, have been linking all these secondary markets between themselves. And obviously, there's a force at play there, which is scale and, and the ability to offer cheap prices through scale. But let me put it this way. How flexible is the regional market so that if you create supply, demand follows? Or is there a, a, a latent demand that these, these carriers have uh, uncovered? 20 years ago, I would have never guessed like some of these city pairs would be feasible. Then you had a, basically a European network that was connecting many of the of the large cities, like say like London to Barcelona, London to Dublin, Paris to Frankfurt, stuff like that. But now you have I don't know from from places like uh, somewhere in middle in 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 the middle of France to the middle of Italy, for example, relatively small cities. Just wondering where is the divide here between the regional the regional airlines and what the low cost carriers can do, and what are the dynamics between the two? Because I guess. From a from a regional airline point of view, it can be quite challenging if if the one uh, let's say a Ryanair or a Wizair sets up shop in your local airport, <laughs> can be a, a really formidable competitor and, and crowd out everyone else. So that's a super question, um, and you're absolutely right. Let me start at the end there. You're absolutely mm-hmm. right that a, a low cost carrier coming in can can really crowd out everything else. Um, I've seen that happen uh, in my own experience. For example, um, a regional carrier flying twice daily, morning and evening to a UK regional point, which is absolutely great for for business passengers. They can plan day trips or one day trips or whatever. It's very good for leisure passengers. They have a lot of flexibility. Um, And then Ryanair came in with perhaps a, a three a week uh, our four-a-week schedule, uh, all at different times of the day on different days, no good for business travel, um, much less convenient for leisure travel, but of course, at lower fares. Uh, the regional carrier in that case decided, I can't compete with that, um, and withdrew its service. So uh, while the average the average fare has come down, so if only if we only measure success by by average fares and passenger numbers, then that's a success. But it has meant that a lot of passenger segments no longer have the convenience that they used to have. So I think one of the big differences between low-cost carriers and regional carriers is low-cost carriers increasingly can create the demand with their own supply. They can put on the route and it's it's uh, if you build it, they will come to a large extent. And that's reflected in the discussions between airports and low-cost carriers. The, the LCC can come to the airport and say, give us a good enough deal. Uh, we'll base one or two aircraft, we'll create this many new passengers, and therefore it'll create this many jobs or it'll create this much ancillary revenue and so on. Whereas, generally speaking, a regional carrier is not trying to stimulate demand with very low fares in the same way. It's trying to respond to demand for connectivity and 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 demand for, for travel. Another way of looking at it, perhaps, and I have nothing against low-cost carriers. I think they have a, a hugely important role in in connecting people as well. But it's a very different model. So another way of looking at it might be um, a small town. We have lots of them here in Ireland, in many other countries, in the UK, elsewhere, which have lots of which has lots of shops in the in the main street. And then a big supermarket comes and and builds a, a new um, new supermarket out of town with a big car park. And the prices are probably lower in the supermarket. So that's a benefit. Um, but it means that the the smaller shops, one by one, close down. And the the town loses a lot of its 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 heart. 
so I'm not saying one is better than the other, but if we talk about just the the benefits of having the the big cheap supermarket on the outskirts, we have to also remember that that has a has an impact on convenience and on on unemployment elsewhere as well. So I think back to your question, I, I think the the big difference is that the the regional carriers are working on uh, developing sustainable, and I mean that with a small s, I'm not talking about environmental sustainability, I'm talking specifically about market sustainability, they're working on developing sustainable routes. And that's also a key point, that they're there for the long term. What we see with low cost carriers is they're very, very footloose, because that's their business model. So they'll come in and they'll start a route. And if they don't like the way it's going, they'll pull off a season later. Whereas a regional carrier is more likely to say, no, I am, this is the community that I'm serving. And I'm going to keep operating this year in, year out, all year round, because I recognize that there is a, a social and economic need that I'm fulfilling here. Of course, the airline has to make a profit, but it's not dashing from one corner of Europe to another corner of Europe looking for the most profitable routes. It's trying to to build up uh, build up its 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 services around its 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 core uh, catchment. Yeah, I'm wondering whether. Having also this larger diversity of, of routes across Europe, for example, has also affected the way that the traffic flows in a way that it has made, uh, let's say, the, the choke points less important. For example, in France, like every everything tended to go through Paris. I don't know if that was the case in the UK because the distances are shorter, but every county tended to, to concentrate the, the flows in, in one uh, major hub. But now many of these passengers have options to travel across Europe direct through all these low-cost carriers. That's something that has affected as well the, the way that these regional airlines are thinking about the market. Yeah, you're absolutely right that the, the rise of low-cost carrier routes and therefore connection opportunities and, and direct services has changed the dynamics in the market. Where it's particularly impacted has been the uh, the hub carriers and the short haul connectivity um, through hubs. So it's one thing to say, I live in I live in Shannon. If I want to travel to Singapore, probably I'll fly from Shannon to Heathrow to Singapore. And that kind of makes sense. If, however, I'm in Shannon and I want to go from Shannon to, let's say, Edinburgh, somewhere short haul, probably I'm not going to do Shannon to Heathrow to Edinburgh and make a short haul connection like that. I'm probably just going to take a, a, a direct flight. Um, mm-hmm. on an LCC. So I think it's impacted, the, the rise of LCCs in Europe has absolutely impacted the competitiveness of short-haul connections, especially through hubs. And if we think about the regional airline sector, there's a diversity of business models amongst regional airlines. Some of them are flying on behalf of big carriers. So there's regional airlines flying routes into Frankfurt for or Munich for Lufthansa, or flying routes into Paris for, for Air France. There are other regional airlines whose main job is not feeding hubs like that, whose main job is just point-to-point connectivity. But I think the the rise of the LCCs is above all impacting hub connections, especially short-haul hub connections, and everything around that, whether that's the, the big carrier or whether that's the regional carrier. In, in terms of differences between Europe and the US, uh, we've seen a lot more turboprops in, in Europe than in the US, where it seems that the regional jet is the, the preferred form of regional transportation. I know there are some... Uh, labor reasons uh, behind some of these fleet choices. I don't know if are there are other reasons there, aside from these more institutional labor one, for, I, for this difference between the two continents. I think the market is quite different between the US and, and, and Europe from a, 
a network point of view, the sector length that regional jets, for example, are flying in the US tends to be tends to be longer. And the dynamics of the market are much more driven by the major carriers in the in the US. So virtually all of the regional airlines in the US are operating under what's called uh, CPAs, capacity purchase agreements with the major carriers. So for example, United Airlines will say to a, a regional airline, okay, we want this many aircraft, we want this much activity from you for the next couple of years, and this is how much we're going to pay you per per ASK or ASM in the US. Um, so they basically hire in the uh the the carrier so it's 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 a wet lease arrangement where the the regional airline doesn't take any of the commercial risk they just have to have a the lowest cost base possible for the for the sectors they're flying in europe there's much more diversity there are some airlines that do that kind of thing those kind of wet lease providers are acmi operators as they're called for aircraft crew maintenance and insurance but an awful lot of the regional airlines are are much more independent they're either flying under their own code, under their own brand, or if they are working with a major carrier, that's only one part of their activity. Or perhaps they have a franchise from a major carrier, but they're taking the commercial risk. So it's a much more diverse um, industry, I would say, in Europe than in, in the US. But let's put it this way. The choice of jets over turboprop, do you see this continuing? Because there are some reasons that make it sticky because of these labor uh trade unions, I think there's some some pilot unions as well, uh, have some agreements to, to fly certain types of aircraft. I read recently an article by Richard Abulafia uh, that was saying, well, you know, if you want to decarbonize aviation right now, there's one way you can do it in, in the US that is actually replace jets by turboprops. It's happened in Europe as well. So yeah, I was just wondering whether are there any other technical reasons or it's just purely institutional reasons that, or, or cultural I I, reasons I think I think you're right I think it's principally cultural and institutional reasons as I say some of the sector lengths are longer I think mm -hmm. in general um, perhaps passengers in the US have got used to jets even mm -hmm. though modern turboprops whether it's an ATR or a Q400 are, are are comfortable and efficient and above all um, far more cost effective on, on the right sectors. So I think it's more of a more of a culture thing. But interestingly, you know, we talk about decarbonizing and, and that raises an interesting example of um, how the different uh, types of airlines um, look at decarbonization. So the um, European authorities, specifically EASA, uh, is in the process of developing a kind of an environmental label for airlines. You know, the kind of rainbow colored label you yeah. see on the side of your dishwasher or your fridge when you buy one showing its its energy efficiency. Um, so the idea and it's a, it's a good idea is to show the same kind of uh, efficiency for a for a, for an airline or for a flight to enable passengers to make some sort of comparison. Now, the problem there is that if you want to calculate just the the efficiency in terms of grams of CO2 per passenger kilometer, the most efficient way you can fly is packing as many seats in as possible um, to, a, to a very modern aircraft. So that would be something like a Wizz Air A321 with, with 239 seats. Um, so a very high density configuration, new aircraft, new engines. That's going to be lower in grams of CO2 per passenger kilometer than most other alternatives. It's certainly going to be lower than perhaps a a, a 50 seat regional jet with a 60% a load factor connecting two remote airports together. But that doesn't mean that one is better than the other or that the the, the very dense low cost carrier aircraft is in some ways environmentally better 
than than the uh, the regional airline, especially mm-hmm. because it may be more efficient per seat. But if the low cost carrier is meanwhile growing at ten percent per year or fifteen percent a year, the total footprint, the total carbon emissions, is going to be far far higher. Yeah. So this uh, is a, this is this is a really um, this is a kind of a strengthening debate at the moment. How do we measure carbon uh, emissions for airlines, and how do we ensure that the story doesn't favor one type of airline over another type of airline? Yeah, and I guess there's a higher proportion of passengers traveling on, let's say, in a more discretionary trip because uh, it's likely that the people flying, let's say, in in, in northern Norway, someone going to a, a doctor appointment in the city from some remote island or, or fjord or something like that, has less of a choice, let's say. Whereas if you go on a weekend out to another European capital, to spend the weekend, it's it's a more discretionary trip. But again, you you would be blamed for a higher footprint flying the the smaller the smaller aircraft in this case. That's absolutely right, and I think it, there's a bit there's a bigger question that we're all going to be facing over the coming years, which is what are we flying for, and what's the the justification for the trips we make. Um, some trips are more essential than others, and I think increasingly we're going to be called upon to think about reasons for travel and do we have to fly quite so much. So, Patrick, what's the view in the industry? You you know well the the regional industry, the the regional airline association. What's their take on this issue, and are they planning anything to uh, address it? Well, as we said, Mikel, on the one hand, the regional sector is going to be where new decarbonisation initiatives like electric aircraft or hydrogen fuel cell aircraft are introduced for the first time. But I think the other important point is, before even we come to that, the comparison between different different airline types. Um, I think from the point of view of regional airlines, they want to make the point that looking at a, a narrow uh, estimate of, of carbon intensity in terms of grams of CO2 per passenger kilometer is potentially kind of misleading because it suggests that the way to go is to always fly with low cost carriers, for example. And on the don't get me wrong, on routes that are are dense enough to support the appropriate kind of, of service with a low cost carrier, then a modern dense aircraft is the, the 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 best configuration however back to what you said a few moments ago it's also about the if you like the the the, the purpose of traveling and whether the traveling is is serving a, a social good um or whether it's it's something more discretionary one of the uh, industry initiatives which isn't just related to, to regional aviation but which is broader which i find quite interesting is a group that's been formed in the leasing industry, in the air finance industry, and they're called Impact on Sustainable Aviation. And it's quite an interesting group because they've been thinking about this. And they've said, if we just look at the carbon intensity, the efficiency, how much CO2 do you produce per passenger kilometer, that can be kind of misleading because as we see with low-cost carriers, they they can they can wave their hands in the air and say, look, we're wonderful. We've got it, we've got the number down to this really low number. But the point is they're growing so fast that they are producing more and more emissions every year. So what um, the impact group is suggesting is there should actually be three metrics. There should be one, which is that intensity, that carbon efficiency, grams of CO2 per per passenger kilometer. But we should also be measuring the total footprint. So how much is the airline emitting in total in terms of carbon? So if it's it's reducing its carbon intensity by 2% a year because it's getting newer aircraft with newer engines, that's wonderful. But if it's growing at 15% a year, then that 2% is more than cancelled out. And then the third metric they talk about, which I think is really interesting, is what they call decoupling. And this is measuring how the growth in CO2 emissions 
is correlated to the growth in traffic. So in other words, if the airline, let's imagine, switches all of its aircraft to pure SAF or it switches all of its aircraft in a few years time to electric aircraft, then it's completely decoupling its growth from its carbon emissions. So what these guys are proposing, and I think it's a really interesting approach, is to say it's not enough just to talk about grams of CO2 per passenger kilometer. If you're a low-cost carrier, of course, you love to talk about that because you're going to look really good on that metric. But it's also important to talk about overall growth of CO2, and it's also important to talk about how you are are decoupling the two. So I think we're going to see more and more of that kind of discussion in the years ahead. Uh-huh. And this is uh, led by uh, an association of leasing companies, you said? Yes, it's a it's an organization. I can send you a link to it. It's an organization called uh, Impact on Sustainable Aviation. So it's an association of different banks and financing companies. You can imagine um, as as banks and financiers, um, they're looking uh, they're looking out for their own business as well. But they want to ensure that the industry moves towards sustainability. Also, I suppose, to protect the value of their own assets, which is understandable. Um, but they they do see that just talking about uh, a, a narrow measure of CO2 per passenger kilometer isn't really telling the whole story. Indeed, yeah. If you have the link, that would be great if you could send it to me because then I will add it to the show notes so that people can have this reference as well. What would be the framework here for, for this type of approach to be widely adopted? That would need to be uh, an industry-wide acknowledgement. This is just a proposal at the moment, so there's mm-hmm. no regulation or anything behind that. But I think it's trying to set the terms for the the discussion or for the debate over the coming years because mm-hmm. one of the topics that repeatedly arises at uh, at industry conferences is the increasing perception of aviation as being let's call it a dirty industry and that's not something that we would have imagined perhaps 10 years ago but there was a um a sustainability conference and a global aviation sustainability conference in dublin two weeks ago and the chairman of one of the sessions said, okay, aviation is on the way to being the new big tobacco. How do we deal with that? And that's not a perspective that a lot of people in the industry necessarily think of or necessarily feel comfortable with. But I think it becomes really important to think about how the aviation industry retains what we'll call its its, its social license to operate. In other words, Will society continue to allow aviation to to operate and indeed to grow as it as it is doing, unless it it shows very much more so than it has done to date that it's decarbonizing? Yeah, no, indeed, yeah, that, those are are important topics, and I, I personally think that the, the aviation industry also could do a better job as well explaining what are the social benefits that it brings. I mean, connecting yeah. people, connecting families, all of that. But but of course. That should also be together with ways to address also the, the the issues that are real and exist and and the risk uh, overshadowing all the other all the all the other positive aspects. So I think you're I think you're absolutely yeah. right. And I mean, just to give you an example, I remember a couple of years ago, uh, Willie Walsh, the mm-hmm. currently the director general of IATA, formerly heading up IAG, and even before that, British Airways and and Aer Lingus, um, he was asked about uh, aviation, and Willie is a very um, strong defender of the aviation industry, and he's very articulated, uh, articulated in doing so. Um, but what he said was he was very proud of the aviation industry. Back to what you were just saying, Michael, he said aviation is is great for connecting people. It's connecting remote regions together. It's enabling families to get together. It's connecting parts of the world that wouldn't have any connectivity otherwise. But funnily enough, when he was talking about remote regions, that essentially is the, the a key part of what regional airlines do. 
So in some ways, he was pointing to regional airlines activities as being the 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 most morally defensible type of, of, of activity. And, and funnily enough, even just a week or two ago, um, IATA produced a report um, about different uh, different airline types in Europe, and they called it one size does not fit all. And what they were trying to demonstrate was we shouldn't only think about policy that fits low cost carriers, we should think about policy that fits network carriers as well. Okay, it's IATA, so you expect them to, to um, stand up for network carriers. But interestingly, their argument for network carriers, amongst other things, was network carriers connect remote regions together and they enable people to um, to see their families and they enable remote parts of a country to be connected to the rest of the country. So in other words, again, they're talking about the benefits of regional aviation. Um, they didn't mention regional airlines in their report, but they were talking about what regional airlines do. So that's another reminder, if you like, that regional airlines perhaps even more so than than other types of airlines, have this really important role for regional economic and social development. And that's going to be increasingly important, I think, as as society evolves under the, let's say, under, under, under the imperatives of, of decarbonization in the coming years. So, Patrick, for people that want to learn more about this topic, are there any resources, uh, websites that you would recommend? I, I would That's think a, the European Regional Associ uh, Airline uh, Association, that would be one. But I don't know if there are other platforms, other channels that you would advise people to check. I think there's a, a lot going on in this space at the moment, Mikael. And, and um, I'll certainly send over a few links for you. I think the ERA website is a, a good starting place for people who want to learn more about the European regional airline landscape. Um, I think there's a lot of debate going on at the moment, as you know, and as you've 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 heard from from other guests. There's a lot of debate going on about how do we decarbonize aviation? How does the how does the industry move forward? Um, and to be quite honest, an awful lot of what what I learn in this context myself is from debates on on LinkedIn and and other uh, other platforms like that, where there's quite a, a lively discussion between um, between people who have a, a an interest, whether it's in uh, sustainable fuel or an interest in the aviation industry or an interest from an OEM point of view. But I'm finding that there's a there's a great deal of of positive discussion and and debate going on in that field. Mm -hmm. Very well. Also, for people that want to learn more about you, about uh, your professional activity, you are active on Twitter, tweeting about aviation. Uh, can you please remind us the your handle? Yes, I have. I have been active on Twitter now. Twitter is uh, is going through a few changes just at the moment, True. so I, I can't. I can't promise to be active on Twitter for the future. <laughs> um, most most of what I've been doing actually in 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 recent weeks and months has been on LinkedIn. So okay. if uh, if anybody wants to uh, to to find me or to to get in touch, LinkedIn is a good a good place to find me. Mm -hmm. And your consultancy practice that's focused only on regional aviation, or you covered all all segments of the aviation industry. Tell tell us a bit more about what you do with this sure. consultancy so, firm. So Altair Advisory, the uh, consultancy firm of which I'm the the managing director, uh, is not only related to uh, regional aviation. We cover all sectors. So we're focused very much on um, development strategy for airlines and for airports. So we're working at the moment, for example, on a couple of business plans for startup carriers. Um, but increasingly, those are in the context of sustainability. So as an example, we've just finished a, a major study on the feasibility of sustainable fuel, sustainable aviation fuel production um, in one European country. We're doing some work modeling the effects of sustainability taxes or additional charges 
on the demand for passenger travel and on the resultant emissions across Europe as a whole, for example, for another client. So more and more, we're seeing a, a link to sustainability in, in the work we're doing. Indeed, yeah, it seems to be uh, the, the main theme right now in aviation. It's uh, what's driving pretty much uh, strategy and long-term decisions. So Very much so. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Patrick, for, for this very interesting overview of the regional aviation industry and, and other topics, sustainability, other topics we've been discussing. I hope we will have a chance in the future to to reconvene and, and see where things are going and what sort of progress there's been since, since we have had this conversation. In the meantime, I will keep reading your LinkedIn posts. If, if Twitter still exists, I will <laughs> keep following you also for insights. And uh, yeah. So uh, just left for me to thank you again for, for your time today. No, thank you, Mikael. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And I really appreciate the uh, the focus on sustainability and developing the industry across your uh, your podcast. So please uh, please keep up the good work. And uh, I look forward to us to catching up again at some point in the future. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye-bye. Before you go, and if you like this podcast, a quick reminder that it would be absolutely great if you could please give it a rating on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you're using, or recommend it to a friend or whomever might be interested. Thank you very much, and see you soon. Yeah.